Talk to me a little bit about ice safety. Like if you're going to step on the ice, what do you need to know? If you don't have anybody to help you and somebody wants to get in ice fishing, like how do you, how do you know that you can be safe doing it? You know, first thing I'd have is these, oh, uh, they're kind of like a screwdriver handle with little spikes on them. They're ice grippers that you keep around your neck. Um, some people put them down their sleeves of their shirt, down their jacket, so they're dangling there. I keep mine around my chin. And so if you do fall through, you know, the first thing you do is you stay calm. You know, you put your, if you fall through, make sure if you fall, you put your arms straight out and stay rigid. Let your arms hit the ice. Protects your chin from hitting the ice. Also keeps you above the ice. Um, you don't want to fall through like a torpedo because if you go through, the odds of coming back up through the same hole are not, you know, it's not that great. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. So, where are we right now? Uh, We're down on the Crooked Creek Marina. Crooked Creek Marina. We're uh, not on Fort Peck. We are on the first bay of Fort Peck. The first bay of Fort Peck. Where Fort Peck kind of begins. and But the Muscle Shell River comes in here. The Muscle Shell and uh, Crooked Creek Creek. Crooked Creek Creek. Yep. Both come in here. Do you say Crick or Creek? I ask people this a lot. Crooked Creek. I say Crick. Yep. I yeah. say Crick. What's the difference between a Crick and a Creek? Well, depends if you're in a chair, rocking chair or <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> but it's the same thing. It just depends on where you're from. Yeah. It's just, you know. It's definitely regional. Yeah. So we've been out here ice fishing. And, folks, this is the Josh Van Wart of Anderson and Platt. And people don't know him as as Josh. People know you as what? What's your, what, how do people refer to you? Uh, they call me the Iceman. And why do they call you the Iceman? Because uh, I ice fish a lot. You do ice fish a lot. I so ice fish a lot. You like worked into your contract that you're going to have three months of winter off to be able to ice fish? Yep. That's intense. Most people don't have that kind of commitment to ice fishing. It's a lot of fun. It's more about trying to figure out while well, being on top of them. You know, with a boat, you can pretty much go anywhere, but... You know, walk on the ice, it's pretty much you versus 
how far you can go and the drive that makes you go there. And then trying to figure out, you know, now with technology and you know, all the apps on the phones, it's a lot easier to find the pools. But, I mean, even a few years ago, you had to go out and you just drilled, drilled, drilled until you found fish. Yeah. And it's just you keep moving, keep moving. And, you know, I've always been a, a foot fisherman, you know, never had a ATV or anything to really go out and jet around. It's been, okay, you know, I I can go over here and I can get back by this time, so I'll work my way out to that point. Drill, 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 and you know when you find fish, you stop and you fish them. Yeah. When they quit, you move. So we've known each other for seventeen years, I think. Yep. Um. So, Iceman and, and me, we we met like the first day of college, Dylan, Montana. We were in the same hall of uh, of the same floor of of the uh, same dorm. Yep. Yeah. Um. And you studied wildlife biology. Yep. And you graduated um with a degree in wildlife biology. Had a bunch of people in your family gone to college before you? I was the first. You're the first one. Yep. First and only. And you grew up in Roy, Montana. Yep. I don't think people know what Roy, where Roy is. How would you describe it? Pretty awesome. Good people. Uh, it's a small town. Everybody takes care of everybody there. You know, if you live in Roy, you're you're considered family in Roy. If something happens to you, everybody, don't matter who they are, whether they like you or not, they step forward to help you out. And there's people that consider Portland, Oregon, a small town. So what's a what do you mean by small? All sixty-five people. Yeah. So like we had the largest graduate graduating class in 10 years there's 11 of us wow uh uh, five boys six girls wow so i remember a story about about your dad his name was dutch right yep um did your dad have a big education no he made it to uh i think fourth or fifth grade he didn't he didn't know how to read or write and he was a logger he was a logger yep he was logging in Washington State. Yep. And then did he move straight from there to Montana? He did. And then what was he doing in Roy? Well, it was dry. You know, he he uh, broke horses, um, raised horses, raised mules, sold them. Um, but just kind of retired there, fished a lot. You know, he'd go down to Lewistown, fish trout in Big Spring Creek. Um, he logged for 44 years on the West Coast. And he was pretty beat up afterwards. He, you know, had a bunch of back surgeries and just beat up. So he moved to a drier climate to Roy. He liked the people there. So he decided to stay. Yeah. Well, I know the answer to this already, but I'm asking anyways. Um, was college easy for you? It was quite difficult for me. Yeah. Um, you know, going into college, you know, when I grew in Washington, when I was a little kid, I was born in Washington and and, and lived there for a while and had a pretty rough childhood there and uh, left there when I was pretty young and moved to Montana. And when I moved to Montana, I didn't know how to read or write either. When I was going to sixth grade, I couldn't couldn't tell you anything. I couldn't read a normal book that a regular kid could read. So I had to start pretty much from scratch from sixth grade. Um, made it all the way through high school. 
Um, I completed algebra up to the sixth chapter on my own uh, without having a teacher. I couldn't get past chapter six in the algebra book. But pretty much everything I had to do was, you know, people came out. It was me having to try and try and try. And, you know, I'd fail many times, but I just kept doing it and doing it until I finally got it. And you kept that attitude throughout everything that I've ever seen you do. So, you know, there was, there were some professors at school, and I remember working as a tutor there, um, where, you know, they'd fail you three or four times. Oh, yeah. And you'd, you'd just keep coming back and taking these classes again, and then you're like, surprise, you know, I'm here. I'm still here. I'm still going to do this. Yep. And you freaking made it, dude. It is incredible. I had one professor when I graduated. He's like, you know, Josh, I tried everything to keep you from graduating, but you did, and I'm damn proud of you. And he yeah. shook my hand. And it was my hardest professor. It was Jack Kirkley. And I looked at him, and it's like, you know, I couldn't believe it. He's like, I didn't think you had what it took, but you do, and I'm damn proud of you. Yeah. And how do you use your degree in wildlife biology now? You know, I... I use it at work. You know, I work in a fly shop, and so I teach, you know, different people about fishing and what fishing do and about the entomology in the river, you know, how the bugs hatch, you know, their life stages. Um, I also have an interpretation pre-professional fishing game and environmental interpretation degree in wildlife man or uh, recreation management. So at work, you know, I kind of... I use the recreation aspect of it to teach people about the fisheries and and help out where I can, you know, with people that aren't fishing, you know, that can't afford a guide and they're trying to learn how to fly fish, but, you know, quite frankly, they can't afford it. So if I have, if I can get the time, I go out and show them how to fly fish. Um, I don't guide them, but I show them how to cast, I show them how to mend, kind of give them an idea, you know, you roll over rocks and say, okay, this is what you're looking at, you grab a handful of moss and you pull it apart and you see the scuds and the different insects that live in there and try to explain to them this is why you use what you use you know and as we're out there you know there's all sorts of tracks on the river and you talk about the different wildlife you see on the river you know the muskrats the bobcats that live on the beaverhead the a otters that are out there that are building little rock dams to trap you know to ambush fish and, you know, it makes it, it gives people a little more than just, hey, you know, I caught 20 fish today. It kind of gives them an idea of what's going on, the big picture. And if the fishing's poor, you got something to talk about. You know, you can, people come back and they, you're like, you know, this was an interesting fishing trip. So I think most people that have gone into a fly shop and talked to somebody, you know, they, might get somebody to be like, yeah, you know, you should try these flies over here. They're not going to get somebody that takes them out to the river and teaches them about river otter biology. And you do that for anybody, right? Yep. It's it's a really amazing thing. And you've, you've always been so generous with your time and your knowledge on so many different species is is constantly amazing to me. Now, we were out here finding these fossils on the shore of this cove that we're fishing on right now. And you're telling me that they came from the Cretaceous period. 
tell me a little bit more about those. Those are beautiful. They're really iridescent and, you know, they're, they're just a gorgeous fossil. So they're, they're opalized fossils. Um, they're quite fragile. Um, the opal here don't form like it does like the opal mines and whatnot, they're pretty exposed. The soil here is bentonite. Um, you find them a lot along the, along the cliffs that are well eroded, where there's uh, a lot of uh, what the locals call bust rock, which is kind of an iron stone. It's a hardened clay that's red, and uh, you can break them open. And sometimes you find the ammonite, the whole shell, and then you, sometimes you find the chemicals, and you find brachiolites. I don't know if I said that word right, but pretty close. And you'll find the tentacles off of the ammonites laying around. And then you'll find uh, several different type of dinosaur bones in this country, too. Now, there's been some, some dinosaurs that were found in this area, fairly close to where we are. Yep. Uh, over by Jordan there, they found one, one of the most intact T-Rexes ever ever found they find triceratops out there um different duck build dinosaurs um big herbivores that were around um people have even you know a lot of buffalo skulls from all ages you know until recent uh, extinction from the country here um they'll find uh sometimes they'll even find mammoth tusks sticking out of uh, some of the clay banks up in this country and you know from the ice age and just it's, it was a very active um, place. It used to be a Mediterranean Sea kind of, as you know, setting. You'll find clam fossils, and um, I've never found leaf fossils, but other people have, and shark teeth in the ant hills. And wow, so it's it's got to be cool growing up in a place like this where. You know, there's a real possibility when you're out riding around on a ranch that you might run into a freaking dinosaur. It was really cool. We found quite a few different uh, vertebrates. We used, we put them in the uh, rock garden. So, we, you know, you, you can't grow much out here because the soil is not great. So you, you have rock gardens. You're full of uh, different fossils you find on the ranch. Um, Dinosaur vertebrates, uh, some femur, toes, things like that you find along the way when you're out riding. And, you know, some of the stuff you find is just too big to pack back, so you leave it where you find it. And it's just there. And it sometimes you can try, ride by it, and you see it, and you see it, and then you go back down there, and after a big rain, and that hillside's gone. Hmm. It washes down the coulee, and it's lost again Yeah, until somebody else, and... Or you'll be riding around and you go down a coulee chasing a cow that escaped and blew through a fence. And, you know, you go, you haven't been down there before. And you ride down there and you find teepee rings. And you're like, whoa, this yeah. is pretty cool. You know. Now, f- fishing is a big part of your life and a big part of your year, but you do a lot of hunting as well. I do hunt a lot. What are some of your favorite things to hunt? You know... I really love hunting mule deer, the spot and stock, hiking out on, on these coolies here, glassing the the big the big open coolies, looking underneath the junipers. Um, the bucks here tend to, uh, I call them buck bunkers. They get underneath those junipers and they take a flat, flat spot out on these steep hillsides and they sit up high and they watch down, down the coolies and they can see up the coolies and they're right up towards the top. But it's just, you know trying to spot them 
And then when you find them, then you check and see, you know, okay, is this a shooter buck or or not? But it's, it's fun because you'll go out there and they'll just appear out of nothing. And, you know, it's it's just really, really fun and really exciting. And there's some big elk in this country, too. There's some really large elk here. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, they, too, they're right up on my top to hunt. I, I love hunting elk because the place it brings you, you know, it's always one more hill they could be right over the next hill and they're not but they could be over the next ridge and you just keep hunting keep working the timber patches the thick juniper forest and you know you get close to them you can smell them but you can't see them you can hear them but you can't see them and then you know if everything works out all right you harvest one but a lot of times you end up blowing it and each time you do you learn something new about how to hunt them and with for me you know mule deer are really fun um elk can be frustrating for me because it's always a learning curve you know on this country they don't the elk are where you find them they just you know you really got to put on some you put on your walking boots get get a pair of glasses and and go after them because you know, here you see a big bull one day. You might not ever see him again because he'll, you know, he's traveling through and he's just moving until he finds a spot for winter, and yeah. he may live there the whole winter. Yeah. No, it's it's true, and this is really interesting country. And you know, when Lewis and Clark were were coming up here in eighteen o three, eighteen o four, something like that. Um, I think it was 1804. So they started in 1803. They spent the winter with, with the Mandans. And then um, the next spring, they started heading back up the Missouri River. And this was the part where they felt like they were starting to get into the Rockies because they were starting to see trees again in, in the Missouri River breaks. And they were the ones who named this country the Missouri River breaks. And then when they got farther on up to the gates of the wilderness, like that's what they named that, like, and that's not too far from where we are now, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things. So this was the the transition zone where things were really starting to get interesting. And it does feel like you're moving out of the Midwest and into the West when you start entering into this country that's like nowhere else in the world. Yeah. I love it here. This is the first chance I've ever got to spend time here. and It is so interesting. And this fishery... There's like 70 species out here of catchable fish. It's, it's unbelievable. It's amazing. Um, Fort Peck has fifth, over 1,500 miles of shoreline. That's more shoreline than the coast of California. 1,500 miles of shoreline. Yeah. That's really, I don't know if people can even wrap their minds around that. The The U.S. is 3,000 miles coast to coast. Yeah. It's just, it's it's insane. Um, there's fish here that's never even, you know, they've never seen a boat. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of lakes where, you know, there's a lot, lot, lot of traffic on it. But here, you know, it's it's like a small ocean. And these coolies, they just wrap around and create these little micro bays and these big bays. Like Crooked Creek is a bay um, where the lake just starts. And it, you know, it works its way down and... And you get these other fingers. You got Hell Creek, um, you got Rock Creek, you got Forshep Bay, and just a bunch of different offshoots and different fingers. And you know, you start going these different fingers, and each one has its own little habitat. 
I mean, you go up to Bear Creek, and uh, you got a lot of smallies in that country. And, you know, more like here, we don't have smallmouth at all. You know, at least I've never heard one getting caught. But we have crappie, perch, uh, pike, walleye, sturgeon, uh, paddle, uh, paddlefish, uh, pallid sturgeon, and shovelnose sturgeon. Um, there's even needlenose gar. Uh, but there's king salmon out here. It's 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 insane the number of species. There's lake trout and all these species that we usually see in really different types of water. So in one case, it might be this is a cold water only fish, like a lake trout. Yep. And it's a warm water only fish, like a crappie. But like they're all here in the same body of water. Yep. It's really amazing. But it's this huge body of water that's you know so massive that it's hard for people to kind of wrap their minds around and understand. It's hard for me to understand what 1,500 miles of shoreline really means. It's huge. Yeah. And it has an earth dam holding all this water back. Yep. Three mile long. Three mile long earth dam. Yep. Does it have hydropower? It does. It's it does. not much, but it does have. So was it originally built for flood control or what, what was the purpose? Well, it was part of the Roosevelt deal back when they were building dams to okay. get people working. And it was flood control and it helped keep the barges downstream going. Gotcha. So it's a huge controller of like the Mississippi and mm-hmm. and you know, just when they when they need more water down there the dam flows more water. And it flows from here, heads over, hits Sakakawea and over in North Dakota it just keeps going. Amazing. So, I know you also like moose hunting. I got to go on a moose hunt with you one time. Moose are pretty cool animals. Yeah. They are a lot of fun, and the moose that we got was absolutely the best meat I've ever Is that right? Ever experienced. It was yeah. absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and you got a pile of meat off that thing. Got a pile of meat. I believe she was, what, 714 pounds? Is that what? Yeah. yeah. I know we weighed her. Because I think I have a picture of it, actually, when she's on the hook somewhere. See if I can find that. Um, But it was not the traditional, like, Alaskan-Yukon moose hunt that people might be imagining. Because we got to pick her up with a backhoe and put her in the bed here pick up. That was pretty nice. (laughs) I remember walking up to her, and the first thing I noticed was how their legs looked like popsicle sticks. It's just this really long stilt, and then there's just this big ball of just massive muscle Mm. and you know walking up and just remembering how long her nose was and just the hair on her back her hair was just super tall and thick and it was pretty awesome did you use any of that moose hair for fly tying i did i did and then i i uh had top part of it rugged out okay so fly tying is it is an interesting thing, and, and it's something we've talked about on this podcast a few different times. But when we were in in the dorms, all of us had fly tying tables set up in our dorm rooms, which I think is not the norm for most um, dormitories across the U.S. So you know you'd open the door too fast, and marabou would poof up and go everywhere. But we we're tying all of our own flies. One because you know we're creative people, but two because we couldn't afford to go buy flies out in town. Yep. But you have made it farther than any of us 
because now you have um, Umqua buying flies named after you and making royalties off that. Yep. Um, I They just put me on uh, the Umqua signature tires. So That's amazing. That's a yeah. huge accomplishment, given that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of fly tires out there, and only a handful of, of them ever make it to the point where flies actually get named after them and get brought into the commercial fly tying market. So what is that fly that is out there with your name on it now? Uh, it's called the Cos- Josh's Cosmic Crane. It's a crane fly imitation. Uh, I tied it with a reversed hook so the barb rides up. And it, I created that because you cast a fly onto the right onto the moss mats that form on like the Beaverhead River where those crane flies emerge and lay their eggs. So they're skating across. And... Everybody tied the hook down, and what happened is you just start dragging moss, and fish won't eat it. So you're constantly cleaning your hook. Um, also, I tied the body with foam and tubing, uh, so the tubing traps air. Pull it tight so it turns into ribbing as well. And the, the micro foam that I ma- I cut it, I, I buy it at like uh, Joanne's fabric or something like that. It's super fine. I cut it down to my size and wrap it tight and not too tight where it squeezes the air out of the foam but enough to where it gives the gives the bug a, a thin profile and then i use a poly wing kind of a synthetic material that i found for tying shrimp and it really wicks the water good and makes a great wake and it you know somewhat floats it's almost like a neutral material and then i i use uh bugger whiting packs uh bugger packs the brown grizzly for the hackle and antron for the post and then i built a keel out of the foam to help keep that fly above water to help it skate and not sink so the eye don't pull it down and when the fish eats it they typically come up on top of it kind of like a damsel fly so the hook's up, so a lot of times you hook them in the, in the roof of the mouth. And that's really good for clients because it's solid. So when you hook a fish in the roof of the mouth, a lot of times you, you pretty much got them. That's know. a good piece of real estate right there. It is. It, it holds. Yeah, that's why I've gone to these uh, jig hooks so much mm-hmm. for, for all the nymphs, you know. I mean, I'm snagging the bottom a lot less, and then when you're getting in a fish, you're getting into a better part of their mouth yep and i've, I've tied a couple jig jig hook nymphs and f- a lot of jig hook streamers um but here in Dillon, it's really the jig head market really came out we had a fly called the sun kiss and nobody tied on a jig hook and it was tied on a on a like a 135 dairiki you know a scud hook and i got to looking at it and i was like okay so I ordered some, nobody made a size 20 yet, so I, I tied up some 20s on a fire hole, or fire hole sticks, jig hook with the, with the little stones, that's what they call their slotted beads, and uh, I tied a bunch of, uh, bunch of them, and 20s, 18s, and 16s, and 14s, and they were devastating, mm. and I think... 
uh, Montana Fly showed one of their reps one, and and I think they're starting to tie them now, too. I kind of messed up on that by showing them because I don't get royalties on it. Oh, and they ripped you off? They Yeah, they kind of took the pattern. The rep said, well, I'll give you like $50 worth of uh, fly tying material. Oh, that's so shit. just like, well, you won't get nothing else from me. Yeah. So. Well. It's it, it's amazing that you're you're coming up with these new patterns that work so well. I think it's pretty cool, and I think that you know the the cosmic crane fly is not going to be the end of the story. I think you're going to continue to innovate and, and get picked up more and more. And I think that's pretty cool. But back to ice fishing because we're talking with the ice man here. I remember there is there's kind of this culture. Well, there's very much this culture of catch and release in southwest montana like you catch fish you turn it loose and the problem with that is a lot of guys were releasing fish poorly and they're handling fish too roughly and they'd go out and they'd catch 30 or 40 fish in a day and they're probably killing 20 of them extremely unethical and this continues to happen across lots lots of places um but uh but we're ice fishing together and uh I don't know if I was even there or not. Might have just been you and Kyle. But uh, you you always talked about releasing to the grease. And, uh, you know, if nobody on the on the ice is catching fish um, and one guy is, you're going to be that guy. So I remember you saying, the ice man cometh and the ice man taketh away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cracked me up. But it's it's true. And I think that, uh, you know, you've you've got a really solid grasp on that and you're really careful about um, making sure that you're getting the most meat you possibly can. And like watching you fillet these, these pike, like you were a surgeon, a surgeon with that fillet knife and getting every micro ounce of meat that you can off these animals. Yeah. It's yep. important to you. Yeah. You don't want to leave anything behind because you know, you work so hard to catch it and you know, if you just if you butcher it, you're not respecting the resource. Yeah. You know, you're throwing it away, and when you consume it, you're eat, like when you you eat a trout, you know, and or you eat a pike or a crop, you're a perch, and you sit back and while you're eating it, you remember, you know, the time you spent catching it, and the fellowship you had with your friends out there catching it. You know, the memories made, you know, during that fish, you know, and you have it. It's there with you forever, you know, and the memories made is huge, yeah. you know, and, and if you get to teach somebody how to fillet, you know, a fish, it's very difficult to fillet, and most people just, you know, walleye fishermen have kind of a poor uh, thought process on northerns. A lot of them just bonk them and send them back down the hole because they, you know, they eat walleye. They eat everything, but to know how to fillet them to where you can, and they're a great eating fish. But if you can flame to get those bones out, they're really, really delicious fish. Yeah. Well, you you taught me about pickled pike, and that's going to be my project with uh, with the pike that I caught is to pickle that meat and see. It's going to be good. Oh yeah, it's going to be great. Now, fishing on the ice is dangerous, right? That's just the reality of it. And ice has some very strange characteristics that. A lot of folks don't understand. I think they, I think people either think, well, ice is is thin and you can fall through it, or it's thick and you can drive a truck on it. 
But this ice moves around, it pops and groans, it shifts. It shifted so hard yesterday that like some bottles that we had up inside of the the ice hut fell over. It was, it's like living in a constant earthquake out there. And there's these pressure ridges with that are acting like tectonic plates and there's open water and there's leads that break open and, and things fall through these leads and then they slam back together again. It is scary being on the ice and we've got 12 inches of, of ice out here. You could drive a tank on it, but you could also step in the wrong spot and fall through and die. You could, yes. Which happened, unfortunately, to a gentleman right here last week. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about ice safety. Like if you're going to step on the ice, what do you need to know? If you don't have anybody to help you and somebody wants to get in ice fishing, like how do, you, how do you know that you can be safe doing it? You know, first thing I'd have is these, uh, they're kind of like a screwdriver handle with little spikes on there, ice grippers that you keep around your neck. Um, some people put them down their sleeves of their shirt, down their jacket, so they're dangling there. I keep mine around my chin. And so if you do fall through, you know, the first thing you do is you stay calm. You know, you put your, if you fall through, make sure if you fall, you put your arms straight out. And stay rigid. Let your arms hit the ice. Protects your chin from hitting the ice. Also keeps you above the ice. Um, you don't want to fall through like a torpedo because if you go through, the odds of coming back up through the same hole are not, you know, it's not that great. So if you have your arms out, a lot of times I'll catch you as you go down. And then you use your ice picks to pull yourself up. And you kind of point your legs back and push them against the ice and start kicking and pushing yourself forward and with the ice picks you pull yourself up and you don't stand up right away you lay down and you look the direction you came and you try to get back that way and you roll towards good ice and until you start realizing where the ice is good then you'll get up on all fours crawl then get up and stand and get the somewhere warm if you can i yeah. mean this bay is a couple miles long and when you got really good ice fishing ears you know you could go out there miles and if you fall through miles away from any sort of heat you ain't gonna make it i mean so the best thing is avoid you know all you know pressure ridges you can cross them but you really want to be careful you want to go out and test the ice. Um, here at Crick or Crick Marina, Slim's always out with the with the walleye pros here and the different guys that fish us an awful lot, and they're always testing the ice. And you know, people, how do you, how do you test the ice? Um, you have a, a chipping bar. Normally, it's it's like a spud bar from d- digging holes, but you got a uh, edge on it that's chiseled. One side's flat, and the other side's kind of beveled. And you go out and you slam the ice with it as you work your way out to a possible spot that might be sketchy. Um, stay away from soft ice. So if you look at ice, you can kind of see it's, you know, kind of starting to honeycomb a little bit on the top. And it just don't look like the rest of the ice on the lake. Um, it could have like a little frosty puddle on top. When you look at it, it looks like something heaved up and there's a little bit of like somebody spilt water and it froze. You really want to be careful in those areas because there's a reason why that water's on top of the ice. 
Um, there's and there's springs and different thermals. So, you know, here there's a bunch of springs that are artesian well. You got to kind of watch out for. And a lot of the a lot of the water that comes up in these springs is warmer than the water in the lake. So it comes up and it eats the ice from underneath, creates a current. And anywhere you have a current, it eats the ice from below. So it might look safe on top, but you know, you could be in 18 inches of ice and walk to a spot that has pretty good current and you might have an inch and, and you're just walking out there and, you know, you don't know because you look at the ice and, you know, it looks thick, but it really isn't. So it's good to have that spud bar so you can go out there and, and chip at the ice. And, you know, if you hit it four good times and, and you're just chipping away and you get down there six, eight inches and it's hard, you're probably pretty safe. But like these pressure ridges, people go you go right up to them on these side-by-sides, not paying attention, and they go through them. And that's what happened to the fellow last week. You know, he came back late at night and from fishing and got disorientated, and he didn't cross where he normally was crossing. And unfortunately, his buddy made it out, and he did not. Yeah. So. No, it's a, it's a sad deal, and it's a scary deal, but it also shouldn't be something that discourages somebody from going out and ice fishing because you can do it very safely and ice fishing is something that's gone on for a lot of human history um, Correct. we've we've figured out a long time ago and even ice huts um, like one of the most amazing things about an ice hut is that when you put that hut over the top of the ice and then you seal off the bottom the ice glows all that sunlight comes up from underneath the ice and it turns white or green and you know you can see down into into the water and into these ice holes and people figured that out a long long time ago and it's still a really amazing experience the first time i was ever in an ice hut i was just blown away it it doesn't even really make sense that 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 occurs but it sure enough does and it's it's a really cool experience um it's not like this grumpy old men, like you're just, you know, mad at your wife or you have nothing better to do thing. Like it's a lot of fun and it's a really, really interesting way to fish. It is. And when you're sitting there and you can't, you know, and you hear that ice popping and booming and, you know, it's almost like the ice is singing. You know, you get these high pitch cracks that come through and, you know, there's no reason to be scared of them. The ice is making noise. It means it's growing. And like today, we're, you know, we're on a pretty big body of water here. And there's a lot of pressure. You got the river coming in. Um, you have an ice dam that just formed up the river. And uh, so you got flooding up there. You got drop and flow a little bit. And the ice is still growing and it's pushing against the bank. So when you're sitting there in the ice house or out on the open ice, like today, it was a pretty nice day. And you can hear that ice cleaving off as it hits the bank. And it acts like a dozer when it hits the bank. It just moves soil and just erodes away and comes back and falls on itself. And then it'll melt back down. And You know, like today, we we watched the mule deer come down and drink water out of one of those little pools that melted off the bank. And, you know, it's just neat hearing that ice break. And if it does, you, you know it's good. Yeah. You know, I was watching a pressure ridge today grow. Yeah. And, you know, the pressure ridge right there was four inches of ice and, and had open water because it's, it's fresh. It's still moving. And we haven't had cold weather to freeze 
the uh, pressure ridge tight. And there, there are spots where you can cross pressure ridges, but you really got to check them first. Yeah, this pressure ridge right outside where, you know, these two pieces of ice are running together and the ice is building up this ridge. It was a foot tall, six inches tall yesterday. It's three feet tall today. Yeah. Um, the ice is really, really moving. And, you know, it doesn't seem like much to be like, oh, it moved three feet in a day. When you're on it and you feel the ice heaving and lifting and dropping, um, it feels like it's moving a lot. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It definitely gets me. I spent a lot less time on the ice than you have. Nobody calls me ice man. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing what the ice can do and the power it has. Yeah. It's really underestimated. Yeah. Well, um, okay. So what does a year in your life look like? January... We're ice fishing, right? Yep. What happens next? So January, February, you know, it's all about ice fishing. Uh, March rolls around. I I start, I go back to work a little bit and start organizing, putting flies away, making sure pre-seasons are coming, um, calling clients, let them know, hey, you know, this, this is what we're expecting for the year. Um, I'll, I'll be down on the river fly fishing a little bit. Um I have a fella here in Roy that, you know, is as good as my dad. My dad has done passed away and been gone for quite a few years now. But he he raised me as well and taught me a lot, of, a lot of the stuff I know about ice fishing and the outdoors and the knowledge I have today about hunting and fishing and the respect of it and how to utilize it. And uh, so... I keep coming back to Roy, and he's 80 years old now with Parkinson's. He's a Vietnam vet, and so I I spend a lot of time in the winter taking him fishing and making sure everything's good and making sure that, you know, when we go out, he's safe and we can do things that kind of keeps his mind off of the cabin fever. So in March, I'll run back, and we'll spend some time there, probably take him out to a few prairie dog towns and uh, shoot a few prairie dogs and drive we do a lot of sightseeing now uh, a lot of driving around but then i'll periodically come back down to dillon and work probably about a week on a week off april comes i'm pretty well stuck in dillon um I, i'll sit there and tie flies and and talk people through fishing and fly selection and, you know getting them ready for some dry fly action um, talk about the squalls that are soon to come on the big hole and and ice breakage and in different spots and then about the 27th of April I start getting ready for well prior to that but 27th I take off for till the 10th of May and I go paddle fishing over pack over here in the breaks on the Missouri. What's a paddle fish? It's a prehistoric cartilaginous fish. They actually predate the sturgeon. Um, there's not many fossils of them due to the fact that they are cartilaginous. So, you know, they rot fast. Um, their bill, they're, they have a, about a two foot bill that's flat and about, oh, four inches wide, and roughly probably a quarter to three eighths inch thick. And I'm not quite sure what to use it for, but they got it. And <laughs> it's probably for sensing the zooplankton. They're a baleen feeder, uh-huh. and uh, you snag them because um, they don't they don't eat on 
they don't eat conventional tackle, you know, they don't feed on what other fish would feed on, they feed on the bottom of the food chain, and they grow huge, you know. Uh, my biggest is 120 pounds. 120 pound fish. 120 pound fish. It was spawned out. The caviar is absolutely fantastic. Really? It is. So, is it worth any money? It is. It's very expensive. Hmm. Um, it's illegal to sell it in Montana. The state over at intake, they actually harvest it from the fishermen and the state sells it. The state sells it? The state sells it. That doesn't seem fair. It's, yeah. They should allow you if you, but it keeps the poaching down. Yeah. You know, if you, if everybody's allowed to sell eggs, then what would keep you from sure. taking out the whole population? Mm. So, Huh. Seems I, like the state could at least pay you for it. Yeah. Well, they if, process your game for it. Okay. So if you bring your palfish in to, to get the eggs taken out, they'll fillet it and package it for you. Oh, that's nice. So That's not a bad You thing. know, you get something that's done right. Um, like palfish, you, you don't eat the red meat. Mm-hmm. It's very, very fishy, very greasy, not very good tasting. But I, I keep it because it makes very good, you know, catfish bait that time of year. People take their palfish chunks and the waste and throw it in the river. Mm. And so there's different cleaning stations on the river. And if you use that bait below the cleaning station, you catch channel cat and big carp and walleye and sauger. But primarily big cats and carp cool so, using everything using everything um, so is the white meat on a paddlefish taste good does it's yeah. uh it's very oily it's firm very firm um it really takes on whatever you put on it so if you want to marinate it it's very good it'll take on the flavor of marinade really well okay um the hide people actually make wallets uh belts different things out of the hide the hide is very tough i bet you've really got to give it some mustard or yellow sauce as some people call mustard you've really got to give it to sink a treble hook into them yeah you hit them pretty hard and then it's like hooking onto a volkswagen it's a big big mass and a fast moving river in that time of year um that's runoff so the river's running full and those fish really use that current to their advantage hmm. um so i've hooked them in the tail close to the surface and they Really, you know, they'll come out of water and tail walk. Really? And just start running. Huh. You know, they're not typically a jumper. They'll come up and breach a lot in the morning and night. During the midday, they settle down. But they're they're pretty, you know, a lot of people try to catch them on the bottom, but they are a midwater fish. Okay. You know, and, you know, I bow hunted them up on Fort Peck and in the dredge cuts below it, and that's a lot of fun. You spotlight them at night with uh, and they're with uh, spotlight, of course, but their eyes show up red on the surface. Hmm. And you can see their their bill, and you just slowly row up to them and shoot them with a bow, and they take off, and you throw a, a jug overboard with a couple uh, glow sticks in it, and you chase them around and put another arrow in them if you have to. Huh. Okay. So... Paddlefish, amazing animal, interesting way to fish for them, not for the faint of heart. Uh, then what happens? What's next in your year? And then uh, when I get back May 10th, we start rolling pretty good on guide trips. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm booking trips. I'm running lodging. I'm ordering flies, um, doing fill-in orders. 
uh, selling rods, uh, still teaching people fishing techniques and um, drawing out diagrams on how to fish the beaver head, where to fish on the beaver head. And that pretty much continues in tying flies, selling flies, uh, selling my own flies that I tie to, to some of my customers. Um, that continues all the way up until about November nonstop. I work seven, seven, seven days a week in the summertime. And for that, I, I get uh, some days off during hunting season to go hunt. And I, I get from about December 22nd through February off. Yeah. And some weekends off and some week and some weeks off in March. Um, there's a contingent within the hunting community that thinks you've got to be like a CrossFit athlete to go hunt elk. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the first person to tell you, Josh, that's not what you look like. No. And you, you killed an elk with a freaking cast on your leg. Was that cast above your knee when we were in college? It went right up to my knee. <laughs> yeah. I, By yourself. Yeah. I killed an elk three years in a row with a broken leg, with a broken <laughs> leg and packed him out on crutches. So what do you have to say to people that, you know, might think, oh, I don't know if I can go elk hunting. I'm not in good enough shape or, you know, whatever. You know, it's just tenacity. You know, you put your mind to it and you do it and you shoot one and you have to get it out. So you, you make it happen. Yeah. You know, it's it's a large animal. It's a lot of work. But if you put your mind to it, you know, if you're a big guy like me, you know, I can pack weight. You just got to move slow. Yeah. You know. I you know I don't go out and hunt elk when it's super hot out because I know my limitations. I know if it's hot out, I can't get that elk out in time. There's no reason for me to be up there and trying it. I'll, I'll still go and and spot them and try not to spook them out of the area, but I'll keep an eye on them for when it does get cold and I can go up there and and harvest one ethically. So. And, you know, I'm I'm blessed to have some really good buddies that if I do kill an elk, I can make a phone call. They'll come up and help me pack out some shoulders and some hindquarters. But, Absolutely. But I make dang sure that I get a lot of it out and as much of it out as I can prior to that happening. Yeah. So. Yeah, if I remember right, you broke one of your crutches when you were packing one of those elk out. I, yeah, I lost my crutch stubble in the, in the creek, so every time I tried to go up the hill... <laughs> My my right my right leg was the one that was broke, and my crutch would would bury into the earth. And at one point, I had to climb, climb go hand and foot up a uh, big old snowdrift that was a long snowdrift to get up to where it was and drag it down to where I can get it up on my back and cross the creek. And I even found a moose paddle I packed out with a, a shoulder and a hindquarter. <laughs> So just to make it, you know, a little bit harder, you're gonna add some more weight to oh, the yeah. situation. I took I took the ribs, I took the I took everything. I even had the hide tanned. That's awesome. So that's awesome. Man, I mean you you've you've been holding back because you have such terrific stories and I know a lot of them and a lot of them aren't aren't the public isn't ready to hear, <laughs> to hear some of these stories, but Honestly, Josh, like you're you're just one of the most incredible people that I've ever met, and um, I'm really grateful to have you as a friend. And 
and to be able to take the time this week to come out here and fish with you and your home turf and and learn about all these species and have you lie to me and and give me hope that I might actually catch a walleye. It's been awesome, dude. <laughs> walleye have been tough this week. <laughs> walleye have been non-existent this week. They have been yeah. very, very hard. Yeah, you even tried to lie to me and, and say that uh, a sauger was a walleye just to give me a little sparkle of hope. <laughs> it did morph into... Uh, it, I'm still calling it the sauger. <laughs> it grew spots later throughout the day. <laughs> oh, man. Well, if somebody wants to order flies from you or come talk to you about fly fishing or, you know, just come hear hear a story. How do they get a hold of you? Where where can they find uh the Iceman? I'll be at Anderson and Platt Outfitters and you can call there at phone number four oh six six eight three twenty six ninety two. Um come summertime, June, uh the end of May, I'm I'm there every day. Yeah. So stop in, say hi. I'll shoot you straight, and you'll have fun. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate your time. And, uh, folks, if you ever get to Dillon, Montana, and you need some some good flies and some good information on where to go fishing and how to do it, I, I really recommend you stop in and talk to Josh. Thank you, sir. Well, you betcha. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week. <laughs>